Our first Bible reading this evening is taken from Exodus 33, verses 1 to 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the Tent of Meetings. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance, while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Our second reading this evening continues from the first one in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 34 to verse 10. Then Moses said, Now show me your name. Wait, yeah. No, sorry. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, 
I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or to be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favour in your eyes, he said, Then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people I will do wonders, never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Is the Lord among us or not? And how would you know? One way or the other? It's a question the Israelites asked at various stages in their journey through the desert when they were in a place where there was no water to drink. They really had a crisis of confidence. Is is the Lord among us or not? Is he going to take care of us or not? Has he just brought us out here to abandon us? You know, is God going to be there for us? And God reveals his presence among them. He provides for them and takes care of them and stays with them despite their complaining and their arguing and their grumbling. But when Moses spends 40 days on the mountain and they get impatient and they begin to wonder what's happening and they decide they're going to try and connect with God in their own way and they make a golden calf even though they know they're not supposed to make any images or have any other gods... The Lord says, actually, it's too dangerous for me to be in your midst. It's too risky. You are such a stubborn and obdurate and stiff-necked people. If I were to stay among you, there is a real danger I might end up destroying you. Not because God is impatient or or loses control, but because there is a fundamental incompatibility between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people. 
And given their, their apparent disregard, their disbelief in the reality of his presence among them, it would be altogether safer for God to withdraw to a safe distance. Delegate the job of looking after his people to an angel or some other messenger who would conduct them into the land that God had promised to give them. But the Lord himself would let them go on without him. And at that news, they are completely dismayed. It's often the case, isn't it, that people don't seem to realise the value of something until they lose it or are in danger of having it taken away from them. And suddenly, the God they'd taken for granted, the God they'd grumbled about, the God they wondered whether they really wanted to belong to or not, if, if, if this God was going to distance himself from them, that was a disaster. They're appalled at the prospect of God forsaking them. After all, despite all their doubting and complaining and arguing, they had had ample evidence that God really was there. They used to see Moses going into a tent outside the camp and they would see the pillar of cloud, the sign of the presence of God, standing at the entrance to the tent. They knew that God was there. They knew that God was present with them. And there, while they stood and worshipped from a distance, Moses would speak to God face to face. They'd seen the evidence, they'd seen the sign that God really was there. And now they were going to lose that. And that was a scary prospect. This, this claim that Moses spoke face to face with God in Exodus 33:11 is intriguing. Since although it says, you know, Moses and God spoke face to face, when Moses decides he wants to get a bit closer to God and says to God, well, can I see your glory, please? God says, well, I'll make all my goodness pass in front of you, but you can't see my face. That's despite it being said that Moses had spoken with God face to face when they met in the tent. Well, maybe Moses was in the tent and God stood at the entrance of the tent and and the door was shut. It was a a close encounter, but it wasn't a face-to-face encounter. It's clear that God saw Moses' face far more clearly than Moses saw God's face. Moses saw the cloud, clearly enough. He was closer to the cloud than anybody else was allowed to go, but the cloud itself was nothing more than a representation, a sign of the presence of God. Did Moses actually see God face to face? No, he didn't. What he saw was the cloud, the sign of God's presence right there at the entrance of the tent where he was. The phrase face-to-face was more about God drawing near to meet Moses personally than it was about Moses penetrating the divine mystery. In that encounter, God knew Moses far better than Moses knew God. But Moses seems to recognise that there, is, there must be more to God than meeting God in the cloud, amazing and blind, mind-blowing as that must have been. So he says, can I see your glory? Can I, can I go to the, the next level? And God agrees to place Moses in a cleft in the rock while his glory passes before him. But to keep him safe, God says, I will cover you with my hand until I've gone past, and then you can look at my back, but you can't see my face. Now, this is strange. Do we imagine, do we suppose then that God has a a hand that he can use to cover Moses, and he has a face and he has a back? Is God really just like us in that respect? Not necessarily. 
Telling the story in this kind of way, imagining God with a human form, helps us to understand what is going wrong. But it would be inappropriate to conceive of God in terms of the language used to describe this encounter Moses had with him, as if God literally had a hand or a face or a back, and, you know, he's just a kind of giant human being that passes by. But it enables us to envisage that the face of God is, is, is the is God as he really is, and, and we can't cope with that. And, and God protects Moses while he has this close encounter with God. It's an attempt to put what is indescribable into words. But as I read these words, it strikes me that Moses had a phenomenally close relationship with God. And he had an experience of God that was in a class of its own, far beyond anything I've ever experienced, and I imagine far beyond anything that any of us here have experienced either. Whatever glory we might have felt in worship, we've not had that kind of encounter with God that Moses had. It's a reminder to us of of the greatness and the holiness of God, how God is utterly awesome and beyond our imagining. However close we might have felt to God, whatever vision we might have had of God, there is so much more then we can begin to grasp any attempt to represent God, any attempt to pin him down to some form of words or some image is bound to lead to idolatry because we cannot do justice to the reality of who God is or what he's really like. Any claim that that we've comprehended God in our minds of seeing him with our eyes means that we've only brought God down to our level. We worship God because he's infinitely greater to us. And whatever our scientific understanding of the world, whatever our feeling that might be that we've come of age since the primitive writings that make up our Bibles were written, the reality is that for all our understanding, for all our experience, for all our maturity, we have not even begun to comprehend who God is or what he's like. We may think we know him. We may imagine that we understand him. But whatever perception we have of him falls short. The really important thing is that he knows us. And that's a truth that we accept by faith. God clearly knew Moses. They had those conversations in the tent. He allowed Moses to look at his back. And Moses Moses found favour in God's eyes. In Exodus 33, 17, according to the NIV, God says he's pleased with Moses and he knows him by name. But a more literal translation would be, God says to Moses, you have found favour in my eyes and I have known your name. How did Moses manage that? It's not clear. On the basis that he has found favour in God's eyes and God says that he knows him by name, Moses prays, God, teach me your ways so that I would continue to find God's favour. But what it was in Moses that that made God say, actually, you know, I like you. We're not told what that is. It's not a recipe that we can replicate. We're dealing with a God who has mercy on whom he will have mercy. Who has compassion on whom he will have compassion. For whatever reason, Moses found favour in the sight of God. And on this basis, his prayers are answered. And after God says, I'm not going to stay with the people any longer, Moses prays and pleads with God, please don't send us away from your presence. How will anybody know that I, all these people, have found favour in your eyes if you don't go with us? 
What else will distinguish us? What else will mark us apart from all the other nations of the world if you are not in our midst? We're nothing without you. We're nobodies without you. The only thing that makes them unique, the only thing that sets them apart is God's presence in their midst because without him, they're just like any other nation in the world. They cannot be the people of God without the presence of God. It's just not possible. And the Lord takes Moses' point. He answers his prayer and says, I will do the very thing you've asked for because you've found favour in my eyes and I know you my name. But Moses keeps on at God. He keeps on praying for the people. Even after the revelation of God's glory, he continues to pray, if I had found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. He keeps on and on and on because he knows that is the one thing that matters. That God really is with them. The only thing that counts is the presence of God with them. Even reaching the end of the journey and, and getting the promised land will count for nothing if God is not with his people. And that brings home the fact that it's, it's the relationship with God that's paramount. Whatever our aims, whatever our goals, whatever we hope to achieve, wherever we hope to go, whatever we hope to do, doesn't count unless the presence of God is with us here and now. Without a relationship with God, without the Lord in our midst, we are nothing. Moses knows this, and when it comes to praying for the nation, he makes his own relationship with God the basis of his appeal. It's because he's used to spending time in the presence of God, because he has this assurance that God looks on him with favour and knows his name. It's because of all these things that he prays and he receives the answer to his prayer. God does not want to be used like an emergency service. When we turn to him in prayer, the measure of confidence with which we come to him in prayer is related to the extent to which we know that we can trust him because we have this relationship with him. God is gracious. He answers all kinds of prayers. But the basis for our confidence comes out of knowing that we are his people and he is with us and we can trust him because we spend time with him. And spending time with him may be characterised more perhaps by listening to what he has to say than the amount that we say to him. So one good prayer at the start of every day is to say, Lord, walk with me through today. Let me live in conscious awareness of your presence. Do not send me anywhere, do not send me up from here unless your presence goes with me. Live each day in conscious awareness that you live your life in the presence of God. And because he is with you, that sets you apart. That makes you holy, different, distinctive, special. You belong to him. You have found favour in his eyes. So live your life for him. The good news is that God really, really wants to be with you. In fact, he wants to be with you so much that he sent his son to carry your sins on the cross and his Holy Spirit to sanctify you so that you could be safe in his presence. It's only as God does this that we as sinful mortal human beings can exist in his, in his holy presence. 
But God wanted to be with us enough, actually, for his son to die, to take the contamination of sin away, for his spirit to make us holy, so that he could be with us on a daily basis as his people. But how do you know that? How do you know that God is really there? What are the signs of his presence with you on a day-to-day basis? How can we tell he's here Sunday by Sunday? After we we roll up and we we worship and and we go home, you know, if God wasn't here, would, would we be able to tell? Where's the pillar of cloud by the front door? I didn't see it on my way in. I don't suppose you did either. But the problem with signs is you come to rely on them too much. We can't see the Lord, but as long as the pillar of cloud is there, we know we're going to be all right. But the danger then is that you you start to trust in the pillar of cloud, which is only the sign, rather than the Lord himself. And the same thing can happen in church services. If we look for something to happen in our worship, for us to get that particular feeling that God is there, and we don't get that, then we go away thinking, well, was God really there? Or, or that becomes the really important thing that we, we want to, to make sure happens and we try and replicate, if at all possible. And when we start focusing upon those feelings or, or those events or, or this or that taking place, then we are in the process of building our own golden calf. Something that we can see and we can rely on and to some extent we can manufacture. And God won't have that. God is with us because he has promised he will never leave us, nor forsake us. And we have to take that on faith. We have to trust him. It's he that has our lives in his hands. We're not the ones holding on to him. He's the one who holds us in his unfailing grasp. It's he who surrounds us with his unseen presence, and he won't be reduced to a talisman that we can put in our pocket. God, by definition, is unseen, unseeable. You know, the strange feature of this passage is that time and time again, when it talks about the presence of God being with the people, the presence of God going with people, the word that's translated presence there is the word for face. It's the face of God that's with his people. It's the face of God that goes with them. So when we read that Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. Or when God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, what God actually says is, my face will go with you. And Moses says, if your face doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. It's all about God's face. The face of God that's with his people. The face that no one can see and live. Precisely because the presence of God is real with us, that necessarily it's invisible to the naked eye. Because no one can look on the face of God and live. But God is here. His face is with us. We cannot see it. But he's promised to be with us at all times and in all places. And the point about his face being with us is not that we can see him because we can't. The point about his face being with us is that he sees us. 
And he knows us, inside and out. Who we are, what we feel, what we do, where we go, the face of God is with us. And without that, we are nothing, we're nobodies. But in his presence, in the presence of his face, we are his people, distinct from everyone else on earth. The Lord knows those who are his. Our part is to be still and know that he is God and to recognise that the presence of the Lord, the Holy One, is here. And wherever you go this week, the face of the Lord your God will be with you. He knows your name. Live your life for him. Follow his ways. Live this week as one who has found favour in God's eyes, as one with whom he is well pleased. He will be with you, unseen, but his presence is guaranteed.